0: And as always, we will continue allowing the scriptures to form and to shape us. And so we are currently in the book of Philippians. We'll be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9 this morning. As always, as we've gone through the book of Philippians through the summer, asking you guys to try to bring leather Bibles. They smell good. They feel good on our laps. But if not, grab your phones or it will be up on the screen for you, I believe, possibly. Philippians chapter 4. And remember our liturgy here on Sunday mornings. This is an ancient liturgy. When we read the scriptures, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord to which you respond, thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. One more time. This is the word of the Lord. And really thank him, not just like wrote, like thank him for his words to us today. Therefore, Paul says, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Grab your seats and let's pray. We offer you ourselves today as a living sacrifice, gracious Father, merciful King, Holy Spirit. Each of us needing each other and our city needing the church. We pray and we ask you now that you would grant us today a moment of reprieve and give to us the tools of the gospel and the tools of the kingdom of God that we might be the non-anxious people you've called us to be. Satan has a vice grip, his chokehold on our society and on our souls with depression and anxiety but the people of God like a hammer break this stronghold with peace with thanksgiving with gratitude with joy I ask this morning holy father gracious Jesus merciful spirit that our community in particular I ask uniquely for neighbors that these souls would look so different and act so different and behave so different and believe so different that they would arrive here on Sunday morning, not just as anxious as the world, but at peace for your purposes to unfold through us. And I pray, Father, as we approach the fall, these church plants from the eyes of the world and in our flesh, they are so fragile. So many things can break these church plants. But in your view, the gates of hell will not prevail. And so I ask that even right now in this prayer by your Holy Spirit, you would stir these individuals to commit to radical hospitality, to being present in every place, that this would become part of their meaning and purpose to help plant a new church in the city of San Diego that brings life and light to this world and to our city. I pray that you would stir them with courage and conviction to no longer compromise, to no longer keep you on the margins, to no longer keep their Christianity possibly in their pocket, but to say, I want to devote my life to serving Jesus. And if that means being present, just my presence matters in community on Sunday mornings. Father, do that work through the summer that we might this fall reap a harvest for your glory. Please, Jesus, we ask these things in your name, in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, Amen. All right, let's start here this morning. I like to do this occasionally. Would you just take a deep breath into your body? Okay, now as you're doing that with me, just do a little check-in. <clears throat> What's going on in your body? What are you feeling? Try to, try to give some mental descriptions to that, some words. Or even some imagery, some language to it. Are you feeling sharp pain or are you feeling at ease? Are you feeling light or are you feeling heavy? Are you feeling excited, anticipating? Are you feeling burdened? Are you feeling apathy, resignation, hopelessness? So just with that brief little check-in, let me ask you guys a really vulnerable question. How many of you over this last week or even possibly this morning have been dealing with some anxiety? just by a show of hands. Oh, just only a few of us. Wow, that's surprising. Well, well done, you guys are all prayed up and and at peace. I guess we should just go home now. I don't even have a teaching. Here's the reality. I have been in multiple conversations with multiple people both in our community and across the land over these last few years. And statistically speaking, the rise of depression, loneliness, and anxiety is unprecedented in this cultural moment. We, as late modern Western people, are the most wealthy. You have more money than any other human has ever had, ever, despite the rent costs in San Diego. More education, you have more knowledge, more, atu- uh, more, more intellectual awareness, more technology. You have more medical help. You have more longevity. You have more information on nutrition. You have more information in the counseling world, in psychotherapeutic practices. Sociologically, we have made huge advances in understanding how society can thrive and flourish. We, on all accounts, should be living in a peace-filled utopia. Has that been your experience over this past couple of years? (laughs) Now, most moderns, if you're like me, when I first began to learn the Bible and thought about the Bible, having no background in the Bible at all as a late Western modern thinker, whenever I thought about the Bible, I thought of it primarily as an antiquated work of spiritual, mystical, strange, you know, superstitions. The Bible could have nothing to do with me, a late Western modern human being. I mean, we have science, we have social media, we have psychotherapies, we have all of these things that have advanced us to where why would we need the myths of a people from 6,000 years ago to help us out? What could this book of strange stories and commands have to do with me, a late Western modern man. And yet, having studied this book intensively now for over two decades and hopefully for the rest of my life, I have become increasingly enthralled with the level and the way in which the Bible interacts with our modern social, sociological, psychological, and emotional moment. The Bible actually addresses what you and I are feeling head-on, what we experience in our bodies and what we experience in our relationships and what we are experiencing right now in our society. The Bible from 6,000 years ago to 2,000 years ago, that range of authors in that time span, speaks directly to San Diegans in 2022. And Paul, across the centuries, here in the book of Philippians... As we investigate this past few years and our emotional, experiential response to it, and we say, I've been a little bit uncertain about my future. I've been a little bit anxious. I've had some moments of, let's call it, a little bit of worry. Paul, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, if you would read with me, says, do not be anxious. It may be the most tone-deaf command in all of the Bible, He doesn't address it with, explore your familial parental wounds. He doesn't even mention the social falling apart. Friends, he was writing at the time where the barbarians were coming. Western society in the Roman Empire was about to fall apart. And by the way, Paul was writing it from prison where he was facing imminent death. And he just writes to the Philippian church. A command. In the Greek tense here, it's in what we call the imperative. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't a, if you can. This is a command from God's word to his people via the voice of Paul in this letter. And it transcends all of the thousands of years that we have passed. Arriving in our moment right here as you are sitting in your seat, your father through Paul says, do not be anxious. What a ludicrous command when we actually think about the past few years. What a frustrating command, when we actually think about our own inner psyche, our own inner world, how desperate we long for this mysterious, transcendent peace that surpasses understanding, and so we pray, and we read, and we attend church on Sunday morning, and yet, we find ourselves alongside our coworker, right there at the water jug, man, I'm really worried about this, I'm scared about this, I'm overwhelmed by that. The only difference between anxiety and the world And our anxiety is that we show up on Sunday mornings to talk about it. (laughs) And so we need to address that. We have to be actually really humble about that because, indeed, the primary command throughout the entire narrative, Old Testament and New Testament, the most often repeated command is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. In praying, this is why I actually full tilt, full tip of my hand here. This is why I chose the book of Philippians for this very reason. I, in my own personal anxieties and depression and implanting a church, the exacerbation of those anxieties and depressions and uncertainties is just amplified a millionfold. I wanted myself and my wife and my kids and you guys, our community. I wanted us to spend months meditating in the words of a man who I thought was insane. <laughs> How could this man command such things? I wanted to get into the psychology of Paul, but behind the psychology of Paul, I wanted us to get into the realm of the kingdom of God that this man was so indebted to and gave his life to that we might become like Paul, a people who are experiencing truly in our bodies and in our minds the peace that surpasses understanding. That's our goal. And so, if we are willing this morning, if you and I are willing this morning to humbly admit there's probably something off if our anxiety levels and depression levels are no different than our coworkers and peers, we have to start there. We have to acknowledge, hmm, if these commands come throughout the texts that I declare my allegiance to, and I do believe them intellectually, why are they not affecting my biology, my body? My, my central nervous system, the neurochemical system that makes me feel these things. How come these things aren't being transformed? And we have to also humbly ask ourselves, and this is that church plant language. This is where I just, I'm good at selling ice to the Eskimos, so to speak. Here's the vision. We are here to reach the lost. I want to compel you to your actual mission and purpose. It is outside of yourself. It is for who you have been sent to. And so we have to ask ourselves, how will we ever affect real change in this social moment, in this city of San Diego, if we are just as anxious as our coworkers and peers? How? How can we? And I, I'm, I'm telling you, we can't. And so there's a couple of things that I think God is doing in this juncture, in the overall church in the West. Uh, last week, I was having a conversation with a dear friend. And he had such an insightful comment. He said, you know, in the church, we tend to talk about weakness, and we kind of conjure it. We kind of fake it. We we kind of, you know, it's the good Christian thing to say, I'm humble, I'm so weak, it's all Jesus doing this. But we actually are running on our own strength. We're actually doing things in our own ability. We're actually... Just going about it and then tacking Jesus' name onto it. We conjure weakness because it's the right thing to talk about. But this brother was telling me, and the situation he's in is really crippling. I, for the first time in my life, I'm not conjuring weakness in my conversation. I am weak. Like, I have no ability to get out of this situation. I am not strong enough to overcome this. That, my friends, is the beginning of revival. That is what God is doing in this social moment across tiny churches like ours and mega churches across the land, God is bringing the church, his church, his people to a place where all of our strategies and all of our intellect and all of our business modeling and all of our marketing and all of our doing and all of our going, he's saying, house of cards. And we are finding ourselves saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to overcome this. And friends, that is a blessed and sacred space for your soul to be today, for us to be today. This is why we give thanks when we're brought to our knees, crippled by a sense of uncertainty. This is where our Father actually can step in and meet with us and be with us. There is something, as another friend in our church has told me, about Us reaching the end of our own strength, legitimately reaching the end of our own strength. May I just pastorally ask you, are you there? Be honest. Or do you still have your kind of hand on the eject lever, which is your plan, your strategy to make it work? Pull it. Eject. Work your plan out, because at some point in God's grace, you're going to find yourself saying, I don't know where to turn or what to do. I don't know how to overcome. I don't know. It's helpful for us this morning, I think, to explore the cause of our anxiety. Now, I'm going to be really honest about this. This next little section here, I'm going to take my best like theological swing for the fences because I am not a psychologist. I'm not a trained psychiatrist. I'm not a sociologist. But here's what I am convinced of. I am convinced that our theology infuses all of those disciplines. Our theology is actually... Humans' theology, what we believe about God and our interaction with God, that infuses every other discipline in the human experience. Here's my big working thesis for you note takers The root of all anxiety is unbelief. Now, let's really nuance this out. The root of our personal anxiety is unbelief, but not in the way that you're currently thinking, not in the way that you're thinking. The root of our anxiety is unbelief, but it's not that we're not believing. We are always believing something. The problem is we believe the wrong things. Biblically speaking, unbelief is just belief in the wrong things. Now, track with me. Let's have a little fun here. You and I, because we are limited, that is we do not know everything, Because we are finite, because we are creatures, we have to. Faith is how we operate. The most ardent atheist sitting here in the room, God bless you, welcome to church is operating by faith. In fact, almost every decision we cannot function as created, limited, unknowing beings without faith. For example, you got in your car and you drove down the road this morning having infinite amounts of faith that the drivers on the other side of the road wouldn't suddenly swerve into your lane. Traffic laws are an act of faith. You came in here and you sat down in a $7 chair (laughs) from Ikea. That takes a lot of faith. (laughs) That takes a lot of faith. You came in here and you sat down and you wouldn't have. If you didn't have faith, you would literally be still sitting there looking at that chair going, I just don't know about this little flimsy $7 Ikea chair. You have infinite amounts of faith. Almost every breath you take, every decision you make, every action you take requires an infinite amount of faith. Now, do you guys remember back in the day uh, our atonement theory series? It was an in-depth dive into the cross. We did an entire session. One of those sessions was called sin as a malady or sin as a sickness. One of the best ways to think about sin is sin has warped our inner belief structures. We were designed to utterly, as created beings, rest on, trust, receive from our provision, our security, our purpose, and our meaning from God. This is the way that humans and creation was designed. Whatever that talking snake was, who was obviously more than a snake because snakes can't talk, whatever happened in that moment, the belief structure that we had been designed with, we chose to operate out of a different operating system. We chose to define good and evil. We chose to believe that our perspectives and our way of doing life was better. And from that moment on, every human is born with a broken belief structure. And so in many ways, our unbelief, our belief in the wrong things isn't our fault. We are born believing the wrong things. This is why Jesus had to come to save us. Jesus is the only human who has made it through this thing called life, believing the right things perfectly. And he did that for you as your representative. And then he died absorbing all of our unbelief into himself. And so, you and I, in many ways, are stuck believing the wrong things until Jesus and the Holy Spirit indwells us and begins to reconstruct right belief structures. This is how salvation happens. The Holy Spirit comes, we receive, we respond, and then for the rest of our Christian lives, God is rebuilding our proper belief structures into a place of belief instead of unbelief. Now, Hartmut rosa he's a German sociologist who I've kind of been smitten with since James turned me on to him. He says this, the driving cultural force of that form of life that we call modern, that's us, is the idea or the belief, the hope and the desire that we can make the world controllable. That's your broken belief system that's causing anxiety today. You and I believe with all of our hearts, minds, strengths and souls that we can control ourselves and the world. That's what we believe. And so Rosa goes on and he actually says for late modern human beings, the world has simply become what he calls, I love this, a point of aggression. What he means by that is we wake up in the morning and now we have to go forth with the belief that we can control the world aggressively killing our careers, killing the job, killing our relationships, murdering that task. I'm ramped up talking about it right now, feeling like, okay, let's go. (laughs) This broken belief structure has to actually be completely abandoned. It has to be jettisoned, which is terrifying for us. But that is what salvation is. Salvation is the moment where you abandon the self-project that believes it can control the world, making the world a point of aggression, and you return to what we were designed to be, a people who receive what is from our Father in the moment. And it's terrifying. Listen, deconstruction, if you look at deconstruction, what's happening in the church, millennials and Gen Z just floodgating out the church right now, deconstruction is not the loss of faith. It's just a redirection of faith in something else. So my dearest friend, if you're here and you're wrestling with your faith, so am I. Let's go grab a cup of coffee. We're both wrestling. But let's at least be honest that we're only redirecting our faith to something that's probably broken from the scriptural narrative. That's all that's happening in the deconstruction world is a redirection around the cultural narratives or a sense of self, which is the problem going all the way back to Adam and Eve. And so now, let's get to these sources of anxiety. Because our belief structures are out of whack and they are deformed rather than fully formed on God, everything else that happens in this life that should justifiably produce anxiety is exacerbated. It's our unbelief or our belief in the wrong things exacerbates this anxiety to levels that are now chronic, levels that are acute, levels that are crippling, levels that are, in some cases, meriting hospitalization. Let's talk about just a few of those. A sense of self. When we have this broken unbelief, this wrong belief, we believe the cultural narrative, which basically says you can only find yourself from looking within And you define yourself by living out your truest expression of your emotional, sexual, relational desires. The problem with that, when you believe that, is we were actually designed to know a sense of self from our God and through a sense of others. And so when you divorce your knowing of self, when you say... All of my knowing of self is dependent on what I feel on the inside. When you've actually been designed to know yourself in the context of a group of selves as God guides us and directs us, that is terrifying because the whole responsibility of your identity is on you. That's not a conscious thing, though. But I'm convinced the unconscious anxiety that we are feeling is driven by that unconscious narrative that I've got to make somebody of myself. I don't know who I am, therefore I have to self-define. And then we live that out, and that anxiety just ramps up. Let's talk about the social anxieties of the past few years. To say that the past few years have been unsettling would be probably the understatement of the century. Listen, I want you to feel all right that if you are dealing with chronic anxiety right now, you're justified in that. Just just think with me for a moment about what we've been through over the past few years. Even as the most wealthy, comfortable, educated people on the planet. Plague isolated us and quarantined us and has now weaponized our bodies against each other. Have you guys had that moment in the restaurant yet where you've got to sneeze and you go into full panic mode? (laughs) Like you're sitting there in the restaurant, you're like, oh my gosh, I got to sneeze. Oh, please, God, don't let me sneeze in this restaurant. People are going to stare at me. Anxiety. We have weaponized our bodies. This plague has weaponized our bodies. The social media and the technology that we have, the algorithms are actually designed to trigger certain, certain chemical releases in your brain around anger and acceptance. You're part of the right tribe that accepts and anger is what actually gets you released and more welcome into that tribe. And so social media now has ramped up our anxiety so that we're ready to go and fight with our tribe. We're ready to go and overcome the enemy. As well, the fascinating thing that I've seen with social media, particularly like Instagram or uh, sites like that, is that now Gen Z and the millennials, you have like a million armchair experts that are giving you advice on everything you can imagine. and It's all contradictory. You've got like five guys telling you what your nutrition and your weightlifting should be so that you're going to get jacked. And they're all saying something different. You mamas, they're telling you, you do this with your babies, breastfeeding, not breastfeeding. You do this in discipline as parents. You do this as they get older into elementary school. You've got, you name it, whatever around house decor, whatever topic there is if you get on social media there's a hundred armchair experts that are going to tell you contradictory things that's terrifying that's overwhelming when you're sitting there trying to just figure out how do I get my baby to eat tonight and you've got five social media moms all with a million followers which makes them the experts and now they're telling you how to feed that baby I can't hardly read my news feeds anymore. I've been trying to check in, like, what happens in my body when I open up my newsfeeds. Why? Tribal warfare, literal national warfare, the racial upheaval over these past few years, which the racial, the race stuff has always been there. It's just finally bubbling up to the surface again. And, and this is an important place for us as the church to, to consider how anxiety-producing that is on all sides. We as the church trying to labor together together through this particular anxiety-producing season. The rage that is everywhere. Now public shootings, of course, continue to ramp up. You literally can't go to the mall. Uh, You can't go to the movie theaters. I can't sit here on a Sunday morning with my community without always watching the back door a couple times over. I always have a running narrative in my head of get down. Always. This is bizarre. No pastor should have to stand in front of his church on Sunday morning and figure out how do I keep my people from getting shot? This is anxiety-producing. I want you to feel justified if you feel a little bit uncertain and scared. The trust that we once had in our public institutions, institutions like the church, institutions like the family, institutions like uh, education stability, uh, educational institutions that we once trusted, uh, leadership that we once trusted, that is all crumbled in this social moment. And so we have nowhere to turn to. And so we have those sources, but then beyond that, I think that there is also, and again, this, I am not a psychiatrist, so I want to thread this needle very carefully, but I do think that there is some, in some people, neurochemical overload. I do think that in some people, there can be such an, uh, a, a continual acute and chronic sense of anxiety and depression that... The psychotherapeutic drugs that have been developed can create a little bit of space in the brain and in the and in the central nervous system. But I really want to encourage you: you need to find a good therapist, a good psychiatrist. That that's not option one right up front, but that you're, you're going to do some of the stuff that we're going to talk through at the back half of this little talk. I would also say that we need to recognize that. Every morning, when we get up and we go through all these things, the plague, and we go through weaponizing our bodies, and we go through our news feeds, and we go through social media, and we go through believing in our own broken belief system, that does create what the brain interprets as metaphorical tigers, The brain doesn't interpret a tiger and something on your newsfeed any differently. The brain is just like, danger, run. And that's what anxiety is. Anxiety is that sense that I need to get ready to fight or to flee. And so all day long, modern Western people are confronted with these metaphorical tigers of war and plague and rage. And your bodies, our bodies, are on overload. And then the final piece that I think is so important for us all to consider with our personal anxieties is Satan. We're like old-school Bible people here at Neighbors. (laughs) Neighbors. like We actually believe there's a malevolent being, demons, that are actively at work, laboring to plant thoughts, laboring to create narratives, laboring to lie all all the way back, just as he did in the garden. And so there is some satanic attack. Now, to say, which one is it, Dan? Is it neurochemical? Is it just the social anxieties? Is it my own personal loss of self as I've been trying to define myself? Is it satanic attack? Yes, 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 yes. It is a complicated, nasty cocktail of all those things that we're drinking to the dregs from sunrise to sunset. And so into this chaos, Paul says eight things from our passage. Eight things. Stand firm, get along, rejoice, be gentle, know the nearness of the Lord, stop being anxious, pray, and be thankful. Simple, right? <laughs> I wish I could just read that, and sadly, in the church, so many preachers have read that. Those eight things. Hey, do you have problems with anxiety? Here's what Philippians says. Stand firm, get along, rejoice, be gentle, know the nearest of the Lord, stop being anxious, pray, and be thankful, and you're good to go. And all of us are like, okay, I'll do it. I don't know how, though. How do I actually do that? How in the world could Paul give such a tone-deaf Command to a community that was facing greater persecution than you and I could ever imagine from prison under the boot of the Roman Empire, only months from his head being chopped off. How could he say something so ludicrous? And this is why Paul's entire belief structure, he had spent his entire life moving from unbelief or belief in the wrong things in himself, in his credentials, in his expertise, in his strategies, back to right belief, childlike faith in the provision of a father who protects, died for him in Jesus and resurrected. This is, friends, the process, the arduous good, as one author calls it, the arduous good of reforming our belief structures around God and who he is. This is what we are called to. If you today are struggling with anxiety like I am, which most of us will struggle with anxiety and uncertainty and depression our whole life but we have these pathways in this process that Paul lays out of slowly reforming our belief, essentially getting our belief into shape. Paul's list here is both active, like you have a responsibility in this, and it's passive. Okay, as we wrap this up, I just want to frame this up in the in the in the terms of like uh, physical fitness. So track with me. I'm not going to get super meat heady in any of this, uh, but theologically heady. All right. If we think of our belief structures as like somebody who is out of shape and needs to get into shape, track with me. Follow with me here. There is both an active and a passive reality to that actually happening. So somebody who's sitting on the couch and they realize, oh my gosh, I don't feel good. I'm I'm out of shape. I'm not healthy. Here's what I want to do to get healthy. I have to make decisions that I actively pursue that will begin to change the shape of my being. I'm responsible to do it. So if you're like me, I have spent countless hours sitting, listening to podcasts, watching YouTube videos of the most world-class athletes while drinking my soda pop and eating my Cheetos, just saying to myself, I want those abs right there. Crunch, 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 crunch. Wow, that's such an amazing insight on nutrition. Drink, 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 belch. (laughs) We, I think, in modern Western Christianity, have been duped by the lie that we can sit on the couch, i.e. Sunday morning, and be fed a steady diet of promises and truths, but never actually get off the couch and apply those truths in practice to shape our actual faith to change us. Now, in the world of sports physiology, there's a really important idea here. We talk about, in the CrossFit world especially, we talk about uh, minimal dosing for maximal adaptation. That's just big words that means, how can we, in a class, to produce transformation in the human body and even the human psychology, how can we apply minimal dosage of fitness, meaning Don't run yourself into the ground. Don't crush yourself. I know that's that's what CrossFit is known for, but that's not actually what it is. How do you get a minimal dose of fitness in an hour-long session that's going to produce maximal transformation of the body, the hormonal structures, the psychology, the digestion, over the next 24 hours? Minimal dose, maximal adaptation. It's the same with Christianity. You and I must discern where can we do Something active that's going to produce the most passive adaptation. So in other words, you need to understand, in fitness, when you're actually on the Peloton riding for that 30 minutes, you're not getting fit there. It's when you get off the Peloton over the next 24 hours in a passive way. You did the work, you responded, you got off the couch, and you said, I'm going to get on the Peloton for a half hour. After that half hour is over, the body then begins to adapt. Okay, everybody got that? Let's apply it to Christianity. God has given us the tools to form our faith. It starts with Jesus, his incarnation, his death, and his resurrection. That is the center. We trust, we form our belief on him, and the way that we do that is through, no surprise here, meat and potatoes, Christianity, scripture reading and memorization, actively resisting the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Weekly, for a church like Neighbors, weekly Sabbath to actually celebrate, rest, and delight and honor the limits that we live within. Daily practice of embodied stillness and silence. Disconnection from all the world's narratives on a daily basis for at least 5 to 20 to 30 minutes disconnecting so that you can re-engage with your soul and the scriptures and your God in prayer. Contending prayer. Gratitude. Intentional, consistent community on Sundays, at the table, and in our community groups. These are the tools. These are the ways where if we are sitting on our spiritual metaphorical couch saying, I need to get my belief in order then you are the one, I am the one, we must respond to that and say, what can I do? Well, I can read the Bible. I can be in church on Sunday mornings. I can join a community group. I can volunteer. I can go and serve with the poor. I could fast, you can do the practices that in that minimal dose of active activity over the long term, passively begin to form your belief structures. Does all that make sense? All right. How practically do we do this? I think most Christians are completely overwhelmed with a teaching like this because you've been trained that it's all or nothing. And I wanna talk to you about this like tiny habits, minimal dosing thing. (laughs) If right now you're not reading your Bible at all, rather than like, I'm gonna read through the Bible in a year, which is what most of us do, we start out in January and somewhere somewhere midway through Leviticus, we're like, I am done. I'm not doing this. I don't know why I can't eat bats. I'm glad I can't eat bats, but I have no clue how that applies to me. Book of Leviticus stuff, right? Listen, rather than doing that, minimal dose, maximal adaptation for your formed faith. Meditate in Psalm 23 for seven days. One verse, which is what we're going to do today to close our time. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or I lack nothing. Minimal dose, One verse that you memorize and you come back to it over and over and over and over and over. And then the next week you add one and verse two. You, you, you do minimal amounts. You take the tiniest little bit of work, and it will begin to yield greater and greater uh, dividends, greater and greater transformation. And so rather than saying, OK, I've never been exposed to silence. Dan's always talking about doing silence and solitude. And I know he just got back from a monastery with no phones and no computers. And I know that was like a five-day deep dive. I'm going to go do six days at the monastery. Disconnect. No, you'll lose your mind. <laughs> Listen, if you've never been exposed to deep embodied silence, set your alarm for 10 minutes and just focus on your breath and feel what it feels like to just be in your body for 10 minutes, trusting that the Holy Spirit is with you. 10 minutes, five minutes if that's overwhelming. And then commit. The idea of tiny habits or these microdoses is that you are, you, are, you are setting yourself up with something that you know you can succeed in. So you know, you know, you know that you can succeed in five minutes of silence a day. Five minutes of silence a day. And what that does is after you've done that five minutes of silence and you get to day seven and you've done five minutes of silence, no phone, no computer, you've just been with your breathing and trusting that the Holy Spirit is there. At the end of that week, you're like, yeah, I did it. I'm going to go seven minutes. And at the end of the next week, you're like, I'm going to go nine minutes. And at the end of the next week, and what you need to understand is it's the same in the fitness world. World-class athletes, world-class triathletes, they're not sitting on the couch, malformed and misshaped, and they say, I'm going to go run the Ironman the next day. They build over an entire lifetime. This is Christianity. This is what leads to the peace that surpasses understanding. And then finally, friends, as I wrap this up and we get ready to actually do this this morning, actually to embody this practice, be realistic about this. Peace that surpasses understanding that Paul is talking about, I don't think, I don't think that the peace that surpasses understanding is the absence of anxiety. I know that's a paradox. The peace that surpasses understanding is that you slowly over time, even in the midst of when you're feeling anxious and uncertain, you begin to develop these patterns that are like an undercurrent under the storm. You've got the waves crashing out here but over time through scripture reading, being with people in prayer, confessing sin, being at Sunday gatherings under the teachings, uh, uh, doing times of silence and solitude, you've built those things up over time. You're gaining in those things. It begins to produce just a calm, non-anxious presence deep within. What Paul says is the peace that surpasses understanding, guarding your heart and mind. It's not the absence of pain and struggles and trial. Peace that surpasses understanding is not the absence of uncertainties and issues. Peace that surpasses understanding is in the midst of even feeling anxious at the surface, deep, deep within you find yourself saying, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And over time, that will translate to getting into your actual body. It will translate into that.